Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression that work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, my guest is Representative Steve Roberts, who represents the 77th District in the Missouri State House of Representatives and is the chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus. Today, we're going to talk about the special legislative session taking place right now in Jefferson City. So, Representative Roberts, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. And thanks again so much uh, for the invitation, Kevin, to be here today. Oh, you're welcome. So a special session was called uh, this summer. Uh, what was the reasoning behind the special session and how did that come about? Sure. Well, I, I believe it turned more into political posturing, but, you know, the Governor Parsons said that he wanted to address um, crime issues across the state. You know, actually last year, the Black Caucus had asked the governor to call a special session to deal with violent crime in our city and work on some meaningful legislation that a lot of us have been filing over the past few years. So this was called um, within the, the last month um, to, uh, to address some um, about six proposals that he had laid out. Okay. And those proposals initially resulted in what was known as Senate Bill 1. And it, it kind of was a package of a lot of stuff, wasn't it? Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. From uh, the residency requirement to um, dealing with correctional treatment programs, hearsay evidence, witness testimony, um, and adult certification. So there was some stuff that, um, you know, I supported, even in Senate Bill, once we were able to amend parts of it, but there are certain issues that I, I still have, have problems with. Okay. All right. And that juvenile certification or certifying juveniles as adults was what MCU was really concerned about. This is, you know, one of those direct issues that we're working on with the breaking the school to prison pipeline. Um, so what, what did that look like? What was the language of that coming, coming from the Senate? Right. So unfortunately, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of issues with the Senate bill one that came to committee, but I was really encouraged because a lot of the members, Republicans as well, were very supportive of democratic amendments that we were trying to put on. So for example, um, I didn't know this until I had a, a great conversation with uh, Mary Fox and Sarah Johnson with the public defender's office. Whereas if you're an adult, for example, and um, you know, you're, you're charged with a crime that has to go to either a pre preliminary hearing or the grand jury, but with juveniles, um, what can happen um, when they're trying to certify them as an adult, an officer will apply for the adult or the prosecutor would apply for that certification um, with the judge and the judge would unilaterally make a decision right then and there. Um, and the defendant or the child wouldn't have an opportunity to explain why they shouldn't be certified an adult or any extenuating or outstanding circumstances. Um, I, you know, I, I am a former prosecutor, but I was not involved with our juvenile unit, so I didn't realize that that could happen. And once they have that certification tag, it can follow them for the rest of their life. So, you know, a lot of Republicans really took issue with that piece of legislation, how, you know, it would still enable, uh, I believe, 14-year-olds to be charged as adults. So I had an amendment that would require, and 34 other states um, have done this, it would require a probable cause hearing before a child could be certified as an adult. I mean, I think that's something fair and reasonable. It's, honestly, I thought that that's how it was playing out already in the state. You know, typically if you're doing with an adult defender, um, you know, they, 
for the case to move forward, you have to have basically a probable cause hearing, you know, demonstrate that there's enough evidence that shows that the crime um, has been met, uh, just the least probable cause for it. But, you know, juveniles aren't afforded that same privilege um, in the certification process. So, you know, legislation like that and some of the bills that I think we would have been able to get on in Senate Bill 1 would have made that better. Okay, so I'm going to back up a second, just reiterate a couple of things. So it sounds like you're saying that up until this point, uh, due process wasn't required um, for certifying a juvenile as an adult. Is that correct? That's right. And my understanding of it is, is right. Exactly. So basically the, the information that the prosecutor and the officers are using, that there's no um, opportunity, I, I believe, to kind of um, to question that, you know, a judge can just unilaterally say, okay, you know what, that sounds good. We're, we're going to certify this person as an adult and they, they're stuck with that um, for the remainder of the trial. Okay. And then another thing that was, was a, a struggle with that particular legislation is that they were lowering the age down to as low as 12 at one point, but then snuck it back up to 14 and, and, and things along those lines, correct? Right, right. And it was interesting. So one, and I'm, I'm probably jumping around a little bit, but since we're on the issue of adult certification, so um, when Senate Bill 1 uh, effectively died uh, in the House, and we can go into the details of why that happened uh, later, but after it died, uh, the Speaker actually sent uh, House Bill 12, which was car- carried by Representative Schroer, um, which had the adult certification portion, um, to the Criminal Justice Committee. And actually, um, I'm the ranking member on that committee. Uh, Rep- Representative Dogan, he's actually the only African-American in the entire General Assembly. He serves as the chairman. So we'd spoke um, beforehand when we found out that that bill was coming to the committee. So he'd incorporated my amendments, um, some of the amendments from other members as well, and language that we'd actually gotten from the ACLU and Public Defender's Office. And I was really excited because that bill made it out of committee with um, broad support. There was only one vote in opposition. So it made it out of the committee with seven votes in favor, one against. Um, and then it went on to the Rules Committee with a s- similar um, bride partisan support you had. 12 members, Republicans and Democrats, all voting for it and only one member voting uh, against it. So it was, it, it would have made our current statutes as far as adult certification much better. Um, it would have clarified language that would allow children to be certified for like nonviolent drug um, possessions. And like kind of the trade-off for that was well, we put an armed criminal action. So we're taking out this stuff dealing with drug offenses for um, uh, violent crime offenses. So I thought that it was a good compromise as I said, it had broad bipartisan support, but as you noticed, that was one of the bills that didn't make it up to the House floor this week, which was very disappointing. You know, it, it was a bill that we'd all worked on, and I felt, for me, that's how the legislative process was supposed to work. You know, I felt like my voice was heard. We had um, uh, experts from both sides coming together, speaking on the issue, testifying in committee, and we were able to put together um, some amendments on that House Bill 12 that everybody was in support of. So it, it was really disappointing that that didn't come out. At least, you know, get it out of the House or the Senate. If they felt we went too far on certain issues, they could still amend it in the Senate or we could amend it on the House floor. But, you know, that was one of the bills that I was really excited about because we had changed it from what it originally was to, to a much better product. It sounds like it went from something strictly punitive to something to, to, to add some structure and, and some, some rights for, for dependent, excuse me, defendants in there. Um, so it was um, uh, not only the, uh, if I remember correctly, the armed criminal action was, was similar to language that already exists in, in, uh, in the legal code. And then also there was even some data collection that would give us a better insight into what's happening. Is that correct? 
Right, right. So we, we kept that in there. So we would be able to track um, information um, for that as well. And, and something else that I was working on, I was hoping to add to the House floor would be the um, right to counsel for juveniles. So basically, those are certain protections that would enable and actually uh, Representative Andrew Burnett has been following that for the past couple legislative sessions. But what it would do is it would make sure that, you know, a, a child understands better what they're getting into um, before they waive their right to counsel. You know, as a, a lawyer, I don't think I would I'm certain I would never tell someone to waive their right to counsel, much less a child. And, you know, you could have, you know, an officer or someone say, oh, you know, you don't really need them. You'll be fine. Like, let's just, just go with it, you know. So we want to make sure we have as many protections um, in place. And I, quite frankly, I, I don't think a juvenile should have the right to waive counsel. I mean, our, you know, if, if you can't, you can't do a lot of stuff when you're a juvenile. And waiving your right to counsel probably isn't one you want to be able to do. It's kind of a risky proposition, even as an adult. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine a child making the wisest decision on that. Right. And you know that that seemed to be one of the problems with the bill to begin with is that you're asking a child as young as 12 years old to think long term about uh, incarceration when that's not how they make decisions at that age. I didn't make the, the decisions, that, you know, that way at, at that age. So I, I can't imagine any other child would do that. No, certainly not. You're just, and, and especially, you know, whether, you know, you're a victim or you're the, um, the defendant in the crime, I mean, you're as a 12 year old, you're going to be going through trauma uh, at that point, you know, taken away from your parents. And, you know, you want someone who has a, a fiduciary duty to, you know, a lawyer who, whose specific role is to look out for your best interests. Okay. And this is all set up against the backdrop of in 2018, the legislation, uh, the legislators were able to reduce the age that youth were automatically uh, considered an adult or, or raise the age, excuse me. From, raise, right, right, from, right. Was it from 17 to 18? Um, That's right. So we, the, at, as a group, a bipartisan group, uh, two years ago, we were able to move that forward to keep, you know, more more youth out of adult prison. Right, right. And that's why, you know, I'm encouraged by it. So, you know, when we're able to get so much support for these amendments that make our statutes even better and more clear as far as, you know, discretionary and mandatory um, hearings for adult certifications, putting in place certain checks to make sure that, you know, our juveniles aren't being railroaded, I think is, is the, the, just the general direction, you know, our, our citizens in the entire state are moving towards. Um, so that was best reflected by getting broad support by the amendments, because I'll tell you, when I was driving up to Jeff City, I was speaking with a lot of my Republican colleagues uh, on Senate Bill 1, and a lot of them were very uncomfortable um, with the language that they put in regarding the adult certification aspects. And, you know, there were talks that it may not even make it out of the Rules Committee um, in its current form. So uh, among other things that, you know, a, a lot of folks were having a heartburn as far as having to, to take a vote on that bill as written. Okay, uh, that's actually good to hear. We we get so cynical about what happens in in, in in politics that that finding some common ground, especially in something that important, is good to hear. So Senate Bill One uh, did get out of the Senate, obviously, because that was their bill, and um, it, it passed with support uh, with all Republicans, but also on the Democratic side, it was. Uh, the, all of the the white senators voted for the bill. Can you? Tell me a little bit about sort of the reaction that the Black Caucus had to that result, and then and maybe also what you were feeling too. Yeah, it was uh, disappointing, but also I, you know, I, I will preface it that I wasn't there for the Senate negotiations, and I'm not sure if 
you know, from my original understanding of what Sinipa looked like, what they were able to dial it back from, you know, in my understanding, and this is part of the reason why Sinipa wanted up dying in the house. You know, there was discussions of adding the concurrent jurisdiction. And what I was, from what I've heard happened in the Senate side is there was a compromise, basically, look, you know, we'll, we're not going to take all, but we'll take a lot of you all's amendments. We're going to need, you know, some support for it. Um, but if you agree to do this, we're not going to call a, we're not going to act in current jurisdiction, have the attorney general attacking uh, uh, circuit attorney Kimberly Gardner. But then as you saw, when Senate bill one came to the judiciary, just about right as our committee hearing ended, the governor was giving, gave a press conference saying he was expanding the call to action um, to include concurrent jurisdiction. So I feel like a, a lot of senators, or I know a lot of senators, even um, in Republican leadership, were blindsided um, by that. And that's highly unusual. You know, when you have an extraordinary session, you know, you've got your leadership um, in line, you know, you know, the issues that are going to be addressed. And even uh, Governor Parson, to his credit, um, before this, he, he called the session, but before it actually started, he came to St. Louis, um, met with me and some other uh, local elected officials from our mayor, public safety director, um, Judge Jimmy Edwards, our chief of police, John Hayden, uh, the U.S. attorney, um, uh, Jeff Jensen, he was there as well. We had, um, you know, and he, he outlined it. He said, look, these are the six issues, you know, I want to talk about. Um, and this was still just the broad strokes. You know, we didn't have the legislation in front of me. But, for example, like, you know, the witness uh, tampering, um, the, the hearsay statements, getting those in a lot of those, uh, you know, were, were there issues where, you know what, I think I could get, get it to a yes on that. My big issue was what the adult certification was going to look at from his end. And during our meeting, I, I made that clear. So you've got this situation where now, you know, the bill is already out of the Senate and it's in the House and he's saying that he's going to expand the call. So, you know, that's, you know, I'm fairly certain what ended up killing Senate Bill 1 um, because it, you know, the, the, a deal, I, my understanding is the deal was worked out on, on that side. So, you know, I was disappointed when I saw that, you know, none of the white senators um, stood um, in solidarity with the black senators, but I don't know what discussions happened um, behind the scenes as well with, with regards to compromise on the bill. Okay. And that's a good reminder that a lot of times you guys are working with more of a big picture than, than maybe individual votes um, that the senators may have been in the process of, of, like you said, dialing it back, knowing that there was still more, more work to be done at, on, on the House side, huh? Definitely. And, and like I said, Senate Bill 1, it came, came through judiciary and there was a lot of aspects. So even with the, um, the witness tampering, um, me and a lot of the other Democrats had some concerns with the particular way it was worded. So, you know, we met with the chairman uh, ahead of time, uh, Representative David Gregory, um, and in the committee, like, look, here's what you're trying to do, but here's an issue. And then, you know, we were asking the witnesses as well, if they saw those problems, same problems, they agreed with us, you know, because you don't want a situation where you're kind of giving carte blanche to a prosecutor just to kind of claim, well, you know, I couldn't find this statement. So we, you know, judge, we have a right to get this here statement. And, you know, first of all, I think that's unconstitutional. It's a violation of the confrontation clause that, you know, as a defendant, you have to question witnesses. Um, so you want to make sure that, you know, it's, it's very narrowly tailored. So it's specific to a situation where, you know, you've got a witness or who's not able to come forward specifically because of, they were harmed or they have a legitimate fear of being harmed, but also that the prosecutor has expended every effort to try to get them there because, you know, the, the right thing to do is to make sure that the witness is there and, you know, is able to testify. But, you know, if, if I, you know, and I kind of agree with this, you know, if you're a defendant and you're, it's shown that you've threatened or you've gone out of your way to tamper and interfere or prevent someone from coming into testifying, then there should be a consequence to that. 
Okay. All right. Good. All right. You mentioned that uh, it's it's a good indication that the concurrent jurisdiction uh, that was put forth by the governor uh, kind of really put the brakes on on what was going on in the House. Uh, describe again what what was going on inside that that proposed legislation. Right. So with the the current jurisdiction, what it would do is it would give oversight to the attorney general's office. And I don't believe any state has has a a provision like this. And I know our state has never had something like this. It undermines local control. And I think that a a lot of Republicans disagree with it as well. I mean, however you feel about uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner, she won an overwhelming uh, victory um, here in the city of St. Louis. And you've got two people, um, Governor Parson and Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who were not elected to the offices that they currently hold. Um, as you know, um, Governor Parsons stepped in after Governor Greitens resigned and Schmidt was, Attorney General Schmidt was then appointed. So neither of them have yet to be elected to the offices they hold. And they're trying to tell a local elected official, you know, who should have oversight of their office. So to me, that's, that's completely absurd. And I think it makes it more difficult for them to try to add that on. So, you know, originally we had this omnibus public safety bill. Now, when you've got something like that, when you've got such a broad title and all these different things under it, it's much easier to add something like concurrent jurisdiction because you can argue that, you know, yeah, this has to deal with public safety and the investigation of crimes. When you have six very specific, narrowly tailored pieces of legislation, it's much harder to make that argument without causing a Hammerschmidt violation. So basically, that's a situation where um, the legislature has passed a bill with amendments that have nothing to do with the underlying bill or have nothing to do with um, uh, the title. So by breaking it apart like this, you know, witness tampering, you know, trying to attach that on like, well, you know what, that really doesn't have to deal with the title of witness tampering or adult certification, you know, concurrent jurisdiction, that doesn't have anything to do with adult certification. So it makes it much more difficult. And as you notice in both the House and the Senate, um, these bills have been filed, but none of them have been referred to committee yet for concurrent jurisdiction. Um, you know, I was a little curious to see if they were going to attempt to attach it um, in the House when those bills came up on the floor. But, you know, they, they, they didn't even make, make an effort to do that. So I don't know if they're going to wait and try to do this again on veto session um, as a standalone bill. But it looks like given that it wasn't added on any of the bills in the House, that um, at least these six bills that have just been over to the Senate, that they're not going to pursue it on those. Okay. All right. So what, what is the status of um, the Senate Bill 1 was kind of broken up and you said it into its, its component parts. What are, what, what's the status of, of those component parts now? What's moving forward and what's kind of been left behind? Right. So uh, as I said, uh, adult certification was um, left behind. Um, we, we did vote out some of the witness tampering stuff, um, the, the transfer of a firearm, um, residency, I'd probably say the most controversial was the uh, residency requirement, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which basically states that, you know, if you're, you don't have to live in the city to be employed by uh, the, the police department or um, EMS or the, the fire department, any, anything like that. Um, and uh, a lot of folks, I think in my party may agree that it's the right thing to do as far as removing the residency requirement. But the issue we've got here is the state legislature overriding local control. You know, we saw something similar when the city of St. Louis and Kansas City decided to raise our minimum wages. You know, then the state legislature went in and they mandated a, uh, a statewide minimum wage, which overrode the progress that we were making here. So. For me, just on principle, I, I take issue any time that the state legislature is trying to override what 
we're trying to do at the local level, especially when you've got um, this issue to be on the ballot in less than three months. I mean, I don't think any Republican would be supportive of supporting any measure that's going to be on on a local ballot um, within the year in their areas. But, you know, when it comes to the city of St. Louis, you know, it's very hypocritical to me that they would they would support that. Are you finding that that's one of the areas of that that you're really kind of getting some support across the aisle, especially with the concurrent jurisdiction, sounds very, very similar in that uh, uh, people from other parts of the state are saying, well, we wouldn't want that to happen to our jurisdiction. Why would we do it to somebody else? Is, is that kind of an area of, of cooperation? It is. I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's big enough, you know, to, to over to, to take the majority. But, you know, when you've got the Prosecutors Association, you know, the, the statewide association of prosecutors representing all prosecutors in the state of Missouri saying, this is a terrible idea. Don't do this. However you feel about Circuit Attorney Kimberly Garner, this is the wrong thing to do. You know, it, it looks bad, especially, you know, you've got the, the uh, who should be really the chief prosecutor in the state. Uh, Attorney General Schmidt, you know, basically saying you're making a mistake by doing that. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, expressed a lot of frustration um, with that office because they still have yet to take any action on the killing of uh, Tory Sanders in Mississippi County, Missouri, who was killed in a way very similar to George Floyd. Um, me and Rod Chapel, the president of the NAACP, have written him, uh, have spoken with his office. We've written him. I actually wrote an op-ed about this. You know, you saw the situation with the McCloskeys in St. Louis, where, you know, he's saying this is completely um, unacceptable. Enough is enough. I'm not going to stand by and enter it and, you know, went to the um, extraordinary step of entering in on a case involving a local prosecutor. Yet when you've got a man who was murdered in police custody, um, you, you're not doing anything. So it, it just kind of speaks to some of the tone deafness, I, I feel, that goes on in Jefferson City. We had some citizens from across the state making the trip to Jefferson City to voice their concerns about a lot of these issues. What kind of impact do these actions have on, on what's, what happens inside the legislature? I think it makes it makes a big difference, especially, you know, when we're when people are able to come up and tell a personal story um, during a committee hearing. Um, You know, when someone is able to talk about how a a piece of legislation will impact them or 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 devastate them in a negative way or even a positive way. You know, I I think it makes it much more harder um, for folks to support, you know, bad pieces of legislation. So I always encourage my constituents. I send out a weekly newsletter to let folks know kind of what's going on up in Jeff City and encourage them to uh, come up and testify if they're able to. Okay. And how difficult has that been since uh, uh, COVID has been in place? Right. And, it, and it's really not fair to uh, a lot of uh, our citizens when you're kind of, you know, passing legislation almost under the cloak of, of darkness um, because you're telling folks, well, they've got to either risk their health um, or, or in some cases, if they have a vulnerable condition, their lives to come up and testify because it just may not be safe for them. So, you know, I, I will say that, you know, in the committee hearings, they've tried to, to space it out a little bit, but I really think that for the legislation we're working on, it should be specifically related to urgent matters, like, you know, dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, criminal justice reform, things like that, things that really can't wait. Okay, all right. And and for you as a, as a legislator, uh, when you're hearing from, um, constituents who support 
your position. How much does that mean to you when, when uh, obviously you're going to hear from people that disagree with you. The, yeah. Sometimes those are the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But uh, when you're hearing from people uh, as a group that support your efforts, what does that mean to you? Oh, it means everything. And, you know, um, with the, in my house district, I represent about 50,000 people and I, I can't be everywhere at once. You know, I go from the central quarter all the way North St. Louis to the riverfront. So that's why it's important to me to constantly speak with clergy, our neighborhood association um, meetings, ward meetings, because, you know, that's where I can really get a pulse on, you know, what are the most important issues going on, you know, um, in, in an area where I live nearby in the central West End, you know, I was at a, a neighborhood association meeting and one of my um, constituents was talking about how, you know, it's really great. A lot of these new developments and buildings that are going up uh, in the area, but it's causing my property taxes to rise and I'm being priced out of my home. And, you know, these are senior citizens who are on a fixed income, have lived in neighborhoods that have been historically neglected their entire life. They've done everything right. And they're planning on staying in their homes until they, they pass. And it's just not fair for, for them. So, you know, I've been working on legislation that other states have to, to lock in property tax rates for um, people who, who meet certain criteria. But, you know, that, that's just an example of how important it is to reach out to your state representative or, you know, other elected leader, because that was something that, you know, I just didn't think of when I first saw that, you know, I'm like, well, I'm glad people are finally investing in, in the city and expanding. And then, you know, well, you've got to look at who, you know, these positive actions may be affecting as well. So for me, it's huge, you know, when people reach out and even if they disagree with it, you know, maybe, you know, they have a different view on, on residency. Maybe they think that no matter what, it's the wrong thing to do because community and policing is important. And no matter what, um, uh, we shouldn't expand those requirements. Tell me that, send me an email, let me know how you feel because, you know, I'm here to advocate for you. So, you know, if anyone has an opinion a thought on something, I, I take that information, I read those letters, you write me, I'll write you back, and I take it into consideration every time I make a vote. So, you know, whether, you know, you're supporting me, that's great, or if you've got a fair criticism, send it my way as well, I, and it'll just help me be a better advocate. Okay. Uh, this is kind of going to lead into where you're heading, heading next. Obviously, you're running for the state Senate uh, coming up in November, but what kind of issues are, are you looking for to, to maybe see in future legislative sessions and maybe even specifically around uh, uh, justice and, and crime and things along those lines? So what, what do you kind of see on the horizon that you would like to see get done in Jeff City? Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you some of the, the first bills I'll file in, and it's something that I've been working on since I've been an elected official dealing with police reform and, you know, with, with the killing of George Floyd and just recently, recently Jacob Blake that have been on camera. You know, it's so, sort of sparked a not only national but worldwide um, effort dealing with police reform. But I guess it's frustrating for me because these are issues that myself and the Black Caucus have been advocating for since before I was born. But just now um, we're starting to, to get support on both sides of the aisle for it. So it's, it's frustrating in that these are issues that we've been talking about. It's not happening more or less. It's been happening as it always has. It's just that now we've got situations where we've got video. We've all got these smartphones. We're able to actually demonstrate objectively what happened. So um, um, some of those, those bills, I actually filed them for the special session. Unfortunately, they weren't referred to committee, but they dealt with, for example, banning chokeholds across the state. I know the St. Louis Police Department um, has banned it, but um, in other municipalities across the state, there's, they have different policies and procedures, and by passing a state-level statute, it would clear up any ambiguity regarding that, so we won't have another situation like 
Tory Sanders, who was, you know, killed um, with a knee um, on his back in, in Mississippi County. Uh, another issue, and um, actually I, was, I spoke with the sheriff of Jefferson County about this, how there's an issue of folks who, what they call um, muni hopping. So you've got someone who is, is fired or let go from a police department, but maybe they, they didn't necessarily do something that, that could be prosecuted or was just a, a violation of department policy. But the underlying thing is that this is someone who shouldn't be a police officer. And what they'll do is once they're released from that one, they'll just go to a neighboring municipality and they're, they're given, who doesn't know about it, and they're given a badge and a gun there until something tragic happens. And then you, you know, find out about these other departments who have issues with that same person. So this, would, this other bill would create a statewide da database to track police misconduct. So you won't have um, another department unknowingly hiring someone who just is not qualified and should not be a police department. So legislation like that, I, I think we, we'd get broad support for it, especially from the police associations. You know, when you've got the St. Louis uh, SLMPD in Kansas City saying, look, we've already barred this. And if I can get them testifying with me, like, you, you know, look, you know, you sheriffs and officers in the rural districts, you know, if we can do it in St. Louis and Kansas City, you all don't need these types of measures. They're inherently dangerous and completely unnecessary. Um, and uh, another big one that I, I think would make a huge effort as far as restoring credibility with our police department will create a duty um, to report and intervene in circumstances of uh, excessive uses of police um, force. And if they don't, that any officers who are witnesses could be charged um, uh, as uh, being complicit to the same level of the offense as the offending officer. So my intention with that is I'm help, hoping that that will encourage even especially newer officers who they see something, you know, they're not sure if they should say something or act. If they know that they can be held responsible for this other officer's actions, they're going to be more encouraged to intervene and do something at the very least report it because then they could be found to be culpable in the same situation. So I think that'll go a long way as far as restoring police accountability in my community. I think the biggest issue is, you know, when, when law enforcement officers don't hold each other accountable, they're quick to run to the, the defense of one another. I'll say in, in recent memory, you know, one of the, the, the exceptions to this was when George Floyd was murdered, when you had that, you know, eight minute and 46 seconds of an officer with his knee on this man's back as he's pleading for his life. That was the first time I, I can really think of where officers universally across the board have said, this was wrong. He was murdered. That officer needs to be charged with murder. I mean, that was the police officers associations. That was our local um, um, law enforcement officers. Everyone across the board agreed with that. I mean, if there was more uh, accountability and if I think officers at the very least would refrain or consider the outside factors as far as holding each other accountable, it'll give their departments more credibility. So I think that, you know, if we've got situations where there's um, uh, an excessive use of force, you've got an officer who's disclosing it and intervening and saying, look, this is wrong. You know, you've got to stop. You're going to restore a lot more faith in the community with our law enforcement agencies. Okay, great. And uh, unfortunately we could keep talking all afternoon. There's some good stuff here. I, I wanna thank you for your time. Um, and, and we're gonna have to wrap this up at this point. And again, my guest today is uh, Representative Steve Roberts who represents the 77th district at the Missouri State House of Representatives and is the chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus. Uh, to learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events and to learn how to join with our efforts. I'm Kevin Prang and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time. Thank you for listening.